Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Yesterday, Israel's parliament voted in favor of a new government, ending Benjamin Netanyahu's 12-year reign as prime minister. The vote ushered in a change government, a coalition of eight different political parties that plan to use a rotation system to fill the prime minister's seat. Naftali Bennett, leader of the New Right Party, will initially serve as prime minister for two years, followed by Yair Lapid, leader of the Yesh Atid, for two years. And for the first time in Israeli history, uh, an Israeli Arab party will be part of the government. Amos Giora is professor of law at uh, University of Utah. He is in Israel right now, and uh, he is joining us to talk about the historic nature of this event. We'll get a follow-up from the violence uh, that occurred. We talked to him just uh, two or three weeks ago about that as well. Uh, Professor Giora, thanks for joining us again. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So remind us, you uh, split time between Salt Lake City and uh, your home, I think, near Jerusalem, right? Indeed. We live uh, outside Jerusalem, and right you are. That I teach at the U, as you mentioned, and we live here. And um, we, I guess I would say that I lead a commuting existence, traveling back and forth between Israel and Salt Lake City. And so you're right there uh, in Israel for this historic event. Uh, just tell us, what was the feeling in the country? I guess if you supported Netanyahu, a bad day. If you did not, uh, a good day. If So we're all about full disclosure. Um, I am in the camp that has been participating in the weekly rallies, demonstrations at the Prime Minister's residence against Netanyahu. Uh, and last night... I and hundreds of others went to the Knesset, where there was a outdoor TV set up, and we sat on the ground watching the uh, Knesset members vote. And when the magic number was reached and the announcement was made, uh, to call it exhilarating would probably be an understatement. Mm. That's my camp. The uh, other camp... The, Net- the, the Netanyahu and what is called his natural base, his natural base and natural allies uh, have no doubt that for them yesterday was a bad day, which we can talk about what bad means here. But for those of us who are advocates of change, and hence the name of the new government, the change government, complicated eight different parties making up the coalition, and if we've been out there. Um, literally rain or shine for the past 15 months demonstrating against this. There's no doubt that yesterday was a historic moment, 100%. I want to get into the new government uh, and uh, you know, some of the politics here. But before that, I want to uh, hit pause on that discussion and, and um, follow up on a discussion we had previously uh, two or three weeks ago in the middle of uh, the most serious violence there in several years. What's uh, what, what's been the feeling there? The aftermath of, of, of this violence. What is is there a hope for a, a stable, a lasting peace between ourselves or between us and Gaza? Yeah, yeah, both, Bo- both. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> maybe treat both. The Gaza, right? With respect to Hamas, Gaza, I have no doubt that when they find the time, when the timing from their perspective is correct that Hamas will test the new government, will test Prime Minister Bennett. 
how Prime Minister Bennett and his cabinet reacts to that will be an important test. I think part and parcel of the, with that will be what kind of interaction, comma, if at all, comma, there will be between Prime Minister Bennett and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and how will the, the U.S. administration engage, re-engage with, or engage with Bennett and perhaps re-engage in the area. I think that the fact that President Biden was, I don't know if the first or amongst the first of, of foreign leaders who called Bennett last night at local time to, congrat- to congratulate him just is, is indicative of how much the, this administration was hoping, frankly, that Netanyahu would lose. And I think that Biden, the Biden administration feels that they will have the ability to have some kind of, an, of a dialogue engagement with the new government. How Hamas sees its role, who's going to, who's, when will they test Israel, test Bennett, remains to be seen. With respect to what for me was far more distressing than the conflict with, with Hamas, the terrible riots we had in the mixed cities between Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs. Indeed, as you noted um, in the introduction of the eight-member coalition in this new government, one of the parties is an Israeli Arab party. It is the first time that an Israeli Arab party is a member of of a government. Will that play a role in, in not only lowering the tensions, but but maybe even I, I don't know what reconciliation means, but trying to pave a, a path forward that will enable us to overcome the terrible riots. You know, one can only hope. Uh, but the fact that there's an Israeli Arab party in the government, from from again for those of us of my ilk, you want the world of unintended consequences. Netanyahu, when in his most desperate hours before. Um, leading up to yesterday, made an effort to convince the, the same Israeli Arab party to join his government. And the leader of this one party, a guy named Abbas, at the end said no to Netanyahu. I remind you and your listeners that in 2015, Netanyahu, in one of the worst, in a moment of utter racism, said to his voters on Election Day, the Arabs are voting in droves. It was a terrible, terrible statement. 100% racist incitement, which typifies Netanyahu. Um, and now, seven, six years later, he reaches out to the Arabs, and what he did for Bennett, and Bennett acknowledged this yesterday in his speech, Netanyahu legitimized the inclusion of an Israeli Arab party in the government. Unintended consequences, I don't think Netanyahu ever intended it, but it opened the door, and those of, my, those of, those of us of my ilk are grateful to Netanyahu for that. Maybe we'd underline this. This is the, the first time this is unprecedented, right, an Israeli Arab party in government. 100% unprecedented. Um, and particularly, on, on, you know, as I say, six years ago, and a truly moment of terrible racist incitement, um, Netanyahu with the Arabs are voting in droves, and there's a way to encourage his voters to vote in the last hours of Election Day in March of 2015. This is a major, major, major step. By the way, another major step is Bennett, who is, in America, we would call him, I think, modern Orthodox, is the first Israeli prime minister 
who is religious and you know wears the yarmulke, the kippah, that too is is a is a is something new. That has been met with vociferous, that's a polite word, vociferous opposition by the religious parties, by the Orthodox parties, who view Bennett as quote unquote having sold out. The incitement from the rabbis against Bennett in the last week has been, lack of a better word, uh, absolutely unhinged. Take it takes us back to the um, unhinged incitement against Prime Minister uh, Rabin 25 years ago, leading up to his assassination, and the tone and tenor of the the rabbinical incitement against Bennett the last week, or in essence, quote unquote ordering him to take off his kippah, the yarmulke, because they say he's now aligned with left-wing parties, secular parties, and that he's destroying the religious um, religious aspect of the state. The word here, the term of art, when, when somebody from the right doesn't like the left, um, is to, call us, to be called a traitor. Rabin was called a traitor. Bennett is being called a traitor. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been called a traitor. We even have now uh, um, T-shirts in Hebrew that say um, we are all left-wing traitors, in essence, saying back to the right, like, enough is enough. Mm. So I tell you the tone and tenor here, is, it was unhinged because of the rabbis and because of Netanyahu. I very much stand by that. I want to quote here from the New York Times. Uh, they say, Israel's fragile new coalition government, and I parenthetically emphasize it's one day old, right? The, Israel's fragile right. uh, new coalition government faced its first test of its unity um, today, after uh, the Palestinian militant group Hamas vowed to respond if a far-right march through the Palestinian areas of Jerusalem on Tuesday was allowed to go ahead. Uh, This will be an important decision and potential flashpoint. Right, there's no 100-day honeymoon here. The, The march was supposed to take place last week, and Netanyahu as prime minister punted to this week. And the government is going to have to decide in the next few hours whether to allow the right-wing Jewish extremists to march through East Jerusalem. It's called Flag Day. I don't know why is it called Flag Day, because that's what it's called here, um, Jerusalem Flag Day. And it is nothing but um, um, overt to provoke the Palestinians, East Jerusalemites, um, how they will react and what will be Hamas's reaction. You know, it's a test. I told you a few minutes ago that uh, Hamas will pick and choose when to test Bennett. This strikes me as as possibly a test. Will the march be allowed? Um, I I don't know, um, but it is a test. No doubt about that. Hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, I didn't remember this, the second paragraph in this New York Times story, uh, March is a rescheduled version of a procession originally planned for last month that was among the reasons that Hamas cited for firing rockets toward uh, Jerusalem on May 10th, setting off that 11-day uh, war. Um, so, uh, you know, potentially uh, big consequences here. Um uh, tell us about this new uh, government and, and, and the leaders uh, here. Tell us first about Naftali Bennett. Sure. Ben- Bennett, um, as I said a few minutes ago, is modern, by American standards, I think we call him modern orthodox. He was um, very successful in high tech, had a, um, an exit in which he made a um, significant amount of money. He worked for Netanyahu. He has been considered to be 
in the Netanyahu camp, and then they had a break as it, pretty much everybody else who's ever worked for Netanyahu at some point is either pushed out or leaves. He set up his own party, which had various degrees of electoral success. He will be palatable to Biden, one, because he's, he's, his parents are moved to Israel from America. Biden speaks English. I'm sorry, Biden. Bennett speaks English like we do. Uh, that will make him, uh, and because he comes across as more open-minded, um, liberal in some ways, more, more, I think, palatable is the right word, than clearly Netanyahu was. But we also need to be honest here. Bennett's positions, position, positions with respect to the Palestinians is hardline. To what extent he will nudge here, or, you know, be pushed here, be pushed there, be flex, flexible, open question. He, the only reason he's prime minister is Yamina, his party, had seven seats of the 120 members in the Knesset. He had seven, now he has six. It's a small party. The only reason he's prime minister is because it was the swing party. If he would have gone to Netanyahu, then, then Netanyahu would be prime minister, and they would have had a rotation, I think. But he, at the end of the day, decided he, that I think that he couldn't trust Netanyahu, and he knows what he's talking about. And he was brought into the coalition by Lapid. Lapid is the large is a larger party than Bennett's, but Lapid understood that the only way that we can have a change government is to have Bennett first in the rotation, and it is a, a true complement to Lapid's. Uh, leadership and commitment to what I would define the best interest of the state, that he gave Bennett the first go-around, even though he, Lapid, his party is more than twice the size of Bennett's party. Lapid, I confess to the crime, uh, I've underestimated him for the past six or eight years. I did not take him seriously whatsoever. And of all the politicians in the last year, he genuinely demonstrated leadership. Uh, he will be the, the first two years, he'll be the foreign minister. He is the responsible adult. Any doubt about that? He put this eight-member coalition together, and he did so flawlessly. Uh, shout out to Yair Lapid. The third member of the a par, third party is the Arab-Israeli party. They have four seats there. Um, and you are right that that is a, a critical moment. The fourth party is Merits, which is the left-wing party. Then there's the Labor Party, which is a traditional party that ruled Israel for the first 30 years and in many ways established the state. There's Bennett's party. There's the Blue-White Party, which is headed up by a guy named Gantz, who was, until last, until yesterday, was the um, rotating prime minister with Netanyahu. And then the last party is headed up by a guy named Gidon Saar. It's a right-wing party. Saar had been in... Netanyahu's Likud party, but left it because he understood that Netanyahu could not be trusted. They had a major, 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 major falling out, and he created his own party, which has six or seven seats. This is truly cobbled a cobbled-together coalition. From my perspective, I, the one thing I hope for is a return to normalcy, a return to sanity, and that we can restore some kind of domestic tranquility. Um, if, if Bennett can do that, 
Oh, there's one, uh, there's one more party I'll get to. If he can do that, that will be a major achievement. The eighth party is called the Russian Party, um, and the head of it is, are, will be the Minister of Finance, who will make every effort. And this is the l- real losers of, the, of this new government are the Orthodox, who are blocked out for the first time in years and years and years. They are totally government dependent on government largesse finances for their educational system and for their children. The fact that they are not in the government for them is a major crisis point. Um, I want to uh, read something to to illustrate the fragility of this, and I think this vote was was one vote, right? Sixty to fifty-nine. So it's, it's uh, misle- very, yeah. very close. It's Sixty to fifty-nine, but it's it's misleading because there are there's another Israeli Arab party that voted against the government, but. When I'm convinced that when push comes to shove, when the government really needs their vote, they'll vote in favor of the government. They voted against the government for purposes of uh, domestic uh, um, Israeli-Arab politics and their conflict with the Israeli party, the Israeli Arab party that joined the government. Um, I confess that last night I was really, 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 really nervous when they started all voting against it. But then when I understood exactly what was happening, um, I don't view it as a 60-59. I think in reality it's, you know, 66, I'm not good at math, 66-54, 67-53, which buys Bennett some time. Mm. But one more point, then we'll get to your point. The, by November, or I don't remember what date in November, the government will need to um, create and vote in favor of a budget. We have not had a budget for two years because we haven't had a government for two years. It is then that it will be very interesting to see how the what the Orthodox do, because they are 100 dependent, 100 percent dependent on government largesse. My instinct tells me that in order to ensure that they get some piece of the pie, they may well join this government. Hmm. I want to quote just a paragraph from a an op-ed piece in the New York Times. Is just uh, I think from yesterday. On the occasion of the vote, this is from Shmuel Rossner, New York Times. Uh, mm. Israel's new government, which was officially formed yesterday, uh, so this is from today, uh, is uh, getting a lot of attention, mostly for one reason. It marks the end of more than a dozen years of Bet- Benjamin Netanyahu's premiership. But this new government is potentially just as significant for another reason. It's the beginning of an era in which Israel no longer truly has a prime minister. Mr. Rosner goes on to say, in reality, neither can do anything without the consent of the other because of a law that in practice gives each veto power. So the result is something more like the ancient Roman system of two consuls. Do you do you agree with that characterization? Is and is that going to make it uh, too fragile to govern? Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I think that as much as there are friends in politics, Bennett and Lapid are actually friends. I'm not just, you know, the fake fake friends in politics, but I believe they really are friends. I think Bennett also understands that it was Lapid's largesse that enabled Bennett to be the the first ground. And I think they're going to view this as a partnership. But, you know, it's all about self interest. Lapid also understands that if the government lasts four years, he will go into the next election in four years as the prime minister. There's obviously a you know significant benefit to that. I hadn't thought about the, the Roman system. Um, what what Rosner suggests there. It may it may be it may take them a while. It could well be that at the beginning that because Bennett is uh, Pete is the largest party, 
that that there will be true cooperation and collaboration between the two of them. I think more than anything else, both of them understand that what needs to happen is the following. One, what I said earlier, a return to some normalcy here. But two, I have no doubt that they understand that Netanyahu and his minions will make life miserable for them. For instance, yesterday in, in Bennett's uh, speech, he was the heckling was terrible from Netanyahu's minions. Um, when Bennett finished his talk, which was interrupted time after time after time after time after time, and it was awful, uh, Lapid then was supposed to give a speech, and he stood up in front of his colleagues and he said the following words. He said, friends, I, I asked my 86-year-old mother to come from Tel Aviv to this. I apologize to her. I am ashamed. I am embarrassed. I apologize to my mother because of the way you all are acting. And then he sat down. Boom. It was an incredibly effective moment. But I think that both Lapid and Bennett understand that Netanyahu is going to full force, um, all hands on deck, make their lives utterly miserable. If you just joined us, we're talking with Amos Giora. He is a professor of law at the University of Utah. He splits his time between Salt Lake City and Israel. He's in Israel right now and is giving us uh, setting the scene from uh, Israel uh, on the historic vote, which happened yesterday, in which uh, after more than 12 years, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is, was ousted as prime minister. A coalition government is now in and this, uh, in in a setting of uh, continued unrest, a uh, very polarized uh, country, and we're uh, getting the scene from Israel from Professor Giora. Uh, let's uh, take a brief break, and we'll be right back. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Les Olson Company, navigating the complexities of today's technology and finding the right solutions for businesses. Offering copier, printer, and scanner sales and service statewide with technical support and outsourced IT services. Information at lesolson.com. This is Science by the Slice. When considering a model of physical theory, how do you know it accurately encompasses all it's trying to explain? One way, says USU mathematicians Michael Schultz and Andres Malmandier, is to tie the theory to math, put it through a series of mathematical computations, and look for anomalies. The team studies the Herzebrecht signature theorem, a mathematical preposition dealing with differential geometry, to explore aspects of F-theory, a 12-dimensional branch of string theory, a theoretical framework for the physical universe. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science. We are talking with Professor Amos Giora of the S.J. Quinney College of Law at University of Utah. He's in Israel right now, his home just outside Jerusalem. A historic vote in Israel yesterday. The uh, parliament ousted uh, the 12-year reign of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, and a coalition government is in. Problems remain, of course, and uh, this on the... In the aftermath, just a couple, two or three weeks after uh, some of the worst violence in uh, in recent memory, 
and we talked to Professor uh, Yora during that violence. Uh, we're getting an update uh, on the situation in Israel right now. So, uh, Professor Giora, my reference there, Israel very, very uh, polarized, uh, as evidenced by, what, I think four elections in two years, just back and forth, back and forth. Well, not back and forth. Uh, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu managed to survive all of those. Um, and now out. Uh, that's where I want to go. Um, what did, what does Netanyahu stand for? What, uh, what are the, you know, when you, when you say Benjamin Netanyahu, what are the policies that, uh, that come to mind? It's an interesting question. So I've been thinking a lot about Netanyahu and his legacy um, in the last days. I also need to, I must confess, I've been following Netanyahu, I mean, not as a follower of, but reading Netanyahu, about Netanyahu. Good Lord, for 30-odd years. Um, I'm not a student of Netanyahu, but I've spent much too much of my days thinking about Netanyahu. I think that the good, the bad, and the ugly about Netanyahu, I think that he was successful. We'll see if it'll also be with respect to Biden, but he was successful in convincing Trump about the dangers posed by Iran's nuclear industry. And he clearly um, and forcefully um, forced, bad English, sorry, but forced the world, or at least Europe and America and Canada, to seriously consider the consequences of Iran's nuclear program. And as I told you at the very beginning, in full disclosure, um, I'm obviously not in his camp, but he forced the world to consider Iran and the danger it poses. I think that in terms of a, of a Netanyahu legacy, that's one. I think, two, because of the force of his personality and his incredible rhetorical skills, he became an important obviously controversial, but an important international figure on the international stage more than any other Israeli prime minister. I think some would suggest that in terms of startup nation, even though he didn't start it, but he's seen as, as a pusher for Israeli innovation. There are those who would tell you that for the rich, he's been very good in terms of the economy. So I would say those are the good things. The bad things, you know, I told you kiddingly before we started, you have a week for me, I could go on. Um, what does he stand for? He is corrupt. He is greedy. He is an insider. He is anti-democratic. He is scared out of his mind about the potential consequences of the ramifications of his trial, which is ongoing. To that extent, he made consistent, conscious, deliberate efforts to destroy state institutions, particularly the courts and the state prosecutor. He, from my perspective, um, violated any sense of norms and decency. When he participated in the incitement against Ravine leading up to the assassination 25 years ago, he didn't learn a thing 
as seen in the last weeks. Um, we will be, my ilk will benefit from him leaving the stage. Um, he is a destructive person who demonizes and delegitimizes the others. And I speak as one who's obviously been delegitimized because I belong to the left. And the degree of his unhinged incitement in the last days um, is really who Bibi Netanyahu is and how Bibi Netanyahu should be remembered. I woke up this morning with a huge smile on my face because when I woke up, I said to myself, I woke up this morning and Bibi Netanyahu is the head of the opposition. That's a wonderful way to wake up because that's, I really do believe that the harms he has caused to society far outweigh any of the good and the positives which, with which I began. So on the other side, what, what, is, what are the top uh, points? What, are, what, what is the change that uh, the folks, including you, uh, were in the streets rallying for? And, and are hopeful now will will come to pass. Right. What, what is what is the change you're looking for? One and end to, to an, a, an intolerance of corruption. That's now who's under indictment or not? Yeah, he's being prosecuted for uh, breach of public trust, corruption, and bribery. The, the tolerance of that will be eviscerated. That's one. Two government ministers who actually are competent and qualified. Um, to start to work on my behalf. Three, um, the, the interaction between the public and the police, which is terrible. Again, those of us from the left, the way the police have treated us in the last year, year, three months, um, I could write a book about that, but that's not going to happen today. I hope that the, the interaction between public and police will shift, that the, public, the police understand they serve me. They are there to protect me. That has not happened whatsoever. Four, positive engagement with Israeli Arabs. I think that's really, really important. Uh, five, a restructuring of our um, economy, where we put a lot more money into schools, where we minimize the amount of money that are that is given to the Orthodox community. Money, Netanyahu, just over the 12 years, just bought their votes, and they, that's why they, they became what is called his natural allies. Hopefully, but I'm not naive, some kind of progress with respect to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. But I need to immediately add, I know that, the, that many of the American community are saying, well, you know, peace with Palestinians is going to happen next. The truth of the matter is, at the moment, Bennett, Lapid, their primary focus needs to be domestic issues, our domestic issues. Um, with all due respect to the Israeli-Palestinian situation, that's not on anyone's radar at the moment. I think the other thing is, obviously, in terms of the American audience, there's going to have to be a re-engagement with um, liberal American Jews and democratic American Jews who Netanyahu has been openly disdainful of. I think Lapid and Bennett will try to re-engage with the American Jewish community, I mean, the liberal American Jewish community. I think they'll also try to engage, re-engage with democratic members of Congress but, but, but I merely add that, that because Netanyahu is going to make their life, their life so, so complicated, polite word for miserable, they're going to be very, very careful not to be perceived as, I'm translating from Hebrew, from, quote-unquote, acting on behalf of America. 
because that's the charge that's going to be made of that 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 they you know Biden's guys, um, and they're going to have to be really careful with that. And Biden's going to be very very cognizant of the need to be very careful in the in the kind of embrace that he will give Bennett and Lapid. Too quick of an embrace, that proverbial bear hug uh, will not be to the benefit of benefit uh, to Lapid and or Bennett. And Biden is going to be very tread very carefully in that arena. Two or three weeks ago when we uh, spoke during the, the, the height of the violence there, uh, you talked about, and earlier in this conversation, you talked about two tracks. Uh, one is that external. You've been talking a bit about Israeli-Palestinian peace, uh, the prospect for that and the drive for that. And, and I believe you said that that's going to take external uh, help, right? Uh, other other nations hey, 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 getting involved. That's the guy. That's, and I was um, it was At the end of the day, the Israeli-Gaza flare-up, that 11-day flare-up, which was utterly unnecessary, um, was successfully negotiated by Egypt. I think actually acting in the past of America. And, it, and, it, and it, 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 as soon as the conflict, as quickly as the conflict started, it ended. It was utterly and totally unnecessary. Mm. And then the... I, I, it was Go ahead. Was, uh, then the other track, of course, you made reference to that in this conversation as well. Uh, the uh, you know the conflict, internal conflict. Um, and you say that worries you even more. Uh, and I want you to talk about that. And how how does that? How do you resolve that? Uh, is is that government? Is that uh, citizens reaching uh, you know across the divides? How do, how does that get resolved? That is a, that's a great question. Um, One that is going to be upon and repeat to engage with Israel or party with Rob um, in a way to to demonstrate to the Israeli Arab community, which is eighteen to twenty percent of us today are Israeli Arabs. Um, they're, they're talking about very significant financial infrastructure in Israeli Arab communities. I think that is probably what brought the Rob party into the coalition. I mean, really, it's 50, I think it's, the talk is 53 billion shekels, which is 12, uh, $15 billion, I think, by the quick um, math. That's significant. That's actually really significant. And the time has come to do that. Do um, those who are responsible, Arab and alike for the terrible to be prosecuted and need to be, you know, convicted of guilty. Uh, and I would like to think that, that Bennett slash Lapid, who are not in any way insiders, um, you know, I don't know if we call it back-channel diplomacy, but the lowering of the public volume of the public temperature, I think, would be really smart. And I, again, I'm hopeful that by working with the Israeli Arab Party slash parties, even those who voted against the coalition, would will serve to effectively enable um, some kind of, of dialogue. But then I immediately had those kind of American words of dialogue and reconciliation are not part of the Israeli lexicon whatsoever. I don't know if you've ever been here. We're a very direct, in-your-face, no kumbaya culture whatsoever. Um, 
And there is obviously anger on both sides. I mean, that was obvious. That's why we do flag day tomorrow. Um, and we we need somehow to have, I think I'm right, that for the Israeli Arab Party to engage both with its now seven, you know, Polish partners and with the Arab street, the Israeli Arab street. How, how, Maybe easier said than done, but I think yeah. that that would be my suggestion. So you've outlined, uh, outlined uh, you know, some things that could be done. How hopeful are you that this will happen? There will be a lessening of the violence and the tensions and, and the progress will be made. If you're not an optimist, I claim you can't live here because it's such a complicated part of the world. Um, I'm certainly a lot more hopeful than I was, you know, 24 hours ago or 48 hours ago. Um, I like to think that the ruling coalition of change government has in its longevity, even though the other other heads of parties in the coalition see themselves as prime minister one day, um, but that they can put aside their egos and work on behalf of the public. Mm-hmm. If they do that, the seemingly insurmountable problems perhaps can be um, successfully addressed. We're coming down uh, near the end of our time, but I wanted to <clears throat> address this kind of in the background of my mind every time we talk. Uh, you split time, of course, between the U.S. and, and Israel. Um, right. uh, to, to me, there are obvious parallels between the political uh, situation, you know, the polarization, et cetera, et cetera. Important differences, too. I wonder if uh, if that strikes you. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that, uh, what uh, the parallels that you so, see. So much so, 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 Tom, that I actually wrote a book that compared Netanyahu to Bibi. Um, yeah, I think, there, I think the whole notion of Trumpism and Bibiism and the polarization and the playing to the base and the the the, the tone and tenor and the delegitimization and the failure and the un- sorry not failure, the un- to acknowledge defeat and unwillingness to act with grace when losing. Um, I think the similarities between uh, Trump and Netanyahu are are significant. So we talked about yes. your your hope. It sounds like hope, optimism. Do you, are you also optimistic about the U.S.? There, there's reason for pessimism. Uh, what are some reasons for optimism? Do you think? You know, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. When I find myself because because when you're here, I mean, here in Israel, you know, you're so those of us who are really locked in on this thing are so locked in on just you know reading Israel, 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 b b b b b b b. I hope tomorrow morning to wake up and to open up or looking at the sports page rather than what the politics page. In the same way that I find myself um, in the aftermath of, of, of um, the inauguration January 20th, I find myself, when I read about America, I'm here, right, for the last, whatever, I don't know, like, please, um, it's, it seems to me, and maybe it's a, you know, the downfall of being, uh, being not physically present, there seems to be some kind of a lowering of the temperature. Um, and if that's what Biden has been able to do, then, then um, I would say that strikes me as a, as a great positive. And then I immediately add, don't forget that for six weeks, I've been li- eating, living, breathing, um, Bibi Netanyahu, about 24 hours a day, but 30 hours a day. So I'm very careful and cautious in any that would offer about the state because it's just enough of you know, you and your colleagues, right? And there's a huge difference between 
reading and living somewhere. That's why, though, I need to put in parentheses. I'm very critical. I'm open about this. Um, when I read in the American press, whether it's American Jewish press or uh, mainstream American media, what Israel, what Israel, what Israelis should do, my warm recommendation is, and I, I know this sounds harsh, but that's okay. If your child is not in harm's way by living here, then I think you need to be very, very careful in giving us advice. Yeah. Uh, you made I think re- the same would be true, because I'm here, not in the States at the mm-hmm. moment. Right. You made reference to the media. What uh, are, are, are there parallels, differences, and similarities in terms of, uh, of media uh, there and here? Yeah, I think that we have three or four mainstream newspapers. Uh, the left-wing paper, which is um, I'm looking at it, it's on our uh, kitchen table, um, has been a vociferous opponent of Netanyahu, and the front picture, front page above the fold, all it's 100% above the fold. It's the only thing above the fold is a picture of clicking the feed, and it says the Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has positioned Netanyahu. I have no doubt that the editor of Hollis was being years for headlines like that. Um, one of the trials that's ongoing about Netanyahu, about the um, uh, the bribery one, which would take me a week to explain to you, is about how Netanyahu, who was is very, 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 very media obsessive, how he tried to manipulate um, news stories to benefit himself. There are those who will tell you that there are reporters here um, who are translating from English, from Hebrew, we would call them the 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 the, the court. They, they were in the, they were his voice, right? They were a propaganda machine. Um, there's one particular TV station, and there are a couple of reporters who are primetime uh, TV reporters who absolutely are his um, propagandists. There's no doubt about that. Um, on the other hand, there are reporters who have been very, very critical of him over the years. Um, and one of the tests will be, by the way, you know, honest journalism, if those reporters who were very critical of Netanyahu will be equally critical of Netanyahu when he you know, makes mistakes. That's always the question, right? In the same way that the New York Times obviously was extremely critical of, of I'm not telling you anything, I don't know, the, the Times and the Post, good Lord, were critical of Trump 30 hours a day. Fair journalism, you know, if you if you believe in, in fair journalism, then the same way that you were a Trump basher, then if Biden makes mistakes, then you should bash Biden. That's what honest journalism is. Mm. Well, we are we have reached the end of our time here. Uh, very interesting to set the scene from uh, Israel. Amos Giora is uh, a professor of law at University of Utah. He splits his time between Salt Lake City and uh, his home just outside of Jerusalem. And uh, we thank him for uh, setting the scene, especially on this historic occasion, uh, the end of the uh, 12-year reign of uh, pro- as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. A new coalition government is now in, uh, one day old now. And uh, Amos Gura has joined us from Israel. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our thanks to Professor Giora. And uh, we hope that uh, you will uh, join us tomorrow. Uh, We have uh, the latest live edition of the podcast, Debunked. Uh, Then on Wednesday, uh, we have uh, 
uh, for more information on COVID long haulers. I uh, hope you'll uh, join us for that uh, program as well. And on Thursday, we'll uh, preview um, some theater for you. All that's coming up this week. Hope you'll be with us. Following a break, we'll end the program today with the latest edition of uh, Dateline St. George with our commentator, John Taylor. We'll also have the latest uh, episode of Bread and Butter. Utah Public Radio is supported by listeners like you and Cash Valley Chamber of Commerce, offering current business information and answering questions about starting and owning a business in Cash Valley. Details at cashchamber.com. Northern Utah's Monarchs and Other Winged Wonders celebration is quickly approaching. Utah Public Radio will be there. We're joining the Cache Valley Wildlife Association at the Nibley Heritage Park, Thursday, June 24th, from 4 p.m. to dusk. Food trucks, information booths, our UPR storytelling recording tent, where you can share your thoughts about caring for the fireflies and monarchs, all part of this great celebration. We'll see you on June 24th. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. I awaken surrounded by thousands of acres of desert hills and mountains, but I still cannot find the great outdoors. As day breaks, I take a brisk walk. I open the corral and let my imagination gallop. Sometimes lyrics and song titles kick in. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Silent lucidity. Amazing grace. Aum. Aum. On the horizon are shrouded mesas, magic makers for my mind. The sagebrush is quiet, but I know it's teeming with sleeping, stirring, skulking, slithering, snapping, and stinging things. I am a sponge. But even this early, everyone else is an open fire hydrant. My nose is engulfed by hash browns and fabric softeners. Joggers and bikers whip by, some with music blaring from their earbuds. Their headlamps would be the envy of Welsh coal miners. I grew up in New York City, where the wilderness was an empty subway tunnel between spurts of trains. New York, of course, is where personal space is allocated based on the size of your wallet. As a society, we rush to fill emptiness. I guess we fear cleansing and being refreshed. I can't understand how RVs parked next to RVs can be blessed as enjoying nature and the great outdoors. That RV experience sounds like a Homer Simpson theme park. Beer, babies, boom boxes, and bad behavior. I would rather quietly step back to wonder whether rustling in the scrubs is a lizard or fox or just a mystery. I would rather watch in quiet awe as sunrise unveils the hoodoos in Bryce Canyon, the petroglyphs, and the layers of dinosaurs. Think about it. We now have a dark mode for our smartphones to provide physical comfort and to preserve our batteries. Essentially, we go dark to improve our well-being. The Greeks used a word, 
ataraxy to describe a state of robust tranquility, free of distress and worry. When it comes to distraction, Southwest Utah sits somewhere between a bombastic Chevy Chase vacation movie and mystics playing sitars while chanting mantras. I still take my daily walks, sidestepping civilization best I can, happy for fleeting encounters with that endangered species called nature. For Dateline St. George, this is John Taylor, wishing you a joyful day. Next up, it's Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Tanya Gibson. I have two medium glass jars of leftover bacon grease sitting on my kitchen counter, nestled in between my bottle of Trader Joe's olive oil and my vintage avocado green floral motifed butter dish. I have never assumed I would be the sort of person who strains and saves bacon grease to use in my cooking, but really, now it's low on the list of broken assumptions I've amassed in my decades on earth. At least I can assuage this assumption with the knowledge that it really my husband who is doing the straining and the pouring. I simply benefit from the full jars. Growing up, there was a stove burner in permanent use as placeholder. In fact, it's still in use to this day. Shortening, back then, came in metal cans, and when one was emptied, my mom would wash and clean it, and it took up residence on the back left burner where it stands to this day. It's the place where extra bacon grease is deposited one meal at a time, commingled into a perpetual can of fat that would go into countless meals of hotcakes, or eggs, or biscuits and gravy, and the things to feed a large family before shuttling them off to school. It was as normal as anything else in our home, but also something left behind once I headed out on my own. I bought and used cooking spray for the first time in college. I couldn't believe the ease this afforded and wondered, on more than one occasion, why my mom hadn't just picked up a can at the store and tossed the can of pig once and for all. It seemed so simple in my 18-year-old mind, and I vowed mine would be a home where spray-on goodness reigned. And then, as life seems to do, I slowly started reverting to the ways of my mother. At first, after the broken cooking spray vow, it was little things. This seemed easier, and that was all I knew. And then, pregnant with my son, I embraced all things organic, and I started wondering if the old ways were really the better ways, the more organic ways, and the greener ways. I started reading labels obsessively, and the things of my youth started making more sense. A little cleaning with baking soda here, plastic abhorrence there, until one day I found a farmer not far from Tooele that sold lard by the bucket. I bought a four-pound tub and then simply became overwhelmed. I had a toddler, a scent of ideals, and a high horse full of principles and no clue what to do while drowning in new motherhood. I stuck that tub into our deep freeze and piled it with tortillas and whole chickens and frozen butter, anything really, to try and cover the guilt. But that bucket was just awkward enough to stick out when anything was jostled and mock me. A few years later, we graduated to an upright freezer and I tossed the lard and most of my guilt. I was certain the whole episode should have been easier and why couldn't I find a good real food solution for flaky biscuits and perfect hotcakes? I pondered this as I slowly stirred some milk gravy in my cast iron pan. We were having biscuits and gravy for dinner that night simply because we had had bacon earlier in the week, and when you have bacon drippings left over in your pan, you make gravy because bacon grease is just the right fat to base your gravy on. 
And then, while stirring the milk in a methodical figure eight, just the way my mother had taught me, the very obvious reached my mind. My mom shortening canful of bacon grease. That night, I lamented to my husband that it really was too bad we couldn't find an old shortening can to sit on our back burner, full of grease, so I could make gravy more often than just right after a meal with bacon. And I kept lamenting until a purge of our kitchen produced two glass weck jars with no obvious purpose other than looking pretty and being shoved and forgotten in the back of a cabinet. I sat them aside in our donate pile, but my husband picked them up and simply said these would be perfect to hold some bacon grease. I certainly don't know the food science behind it, but I do have a lifetime of anecdotal evidence to support my claim that bacon fat equals perfect, thick gravy. Measurements are suggestions, but a heaping spoonful of fat and a heaping spoonful of flour mixed together and cooked just a little is the base to a great white gravy. Slowly add in your milk on a low-medium setting, stirring in a figure eight as you go. The gravy should thicken and bubble, but not burn. Try it, and you might find yourself searching for your own perfect grease container. This is Tanya Gibson for Bread and Butter. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan. 